I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. When Milo Lorenzen was born, concerns over his condition sent him to a neonatal intensive care unit where he spent the first 10 days of his life. It began a medical and diagnostic odyssey for him and his parents. After six surgeries and undiagnosed global development delays, doctors identified a de novo gene mutation to his KDM1A gene that is believed to be the cause of his condition. His parents eventually launched the website Milo's Journey to tell his stories in the hopes of finding others with the same mutation. We spoke to Karen Park, Milo's mother, about her family's experience, the challenge of having a child with an ultra-rare disease of unknown consequence, and the experience of finding others with the same condition. Karen, thanks for joining us. We're going to talk about your son, Milo, the experiences you faced in getting a diagnosis for his ultra-rare condition, and your efforts to find other people with the same genetic mutation. I'd like to start with your diagnostic odyssey. When did you first realize there was a concern with Milo? Really, it started at birth, um, the very first night he was in the nursery at the hospital, and they realized that he had, uh, he was a little bit jittery, and they, as they examined him more and more, they started to notice some anomalies. So that led to 10 days in the NICU, where uh, they essentially misdiagnosed him, and we caught on pretty quickly to that. So uh, that started our journey. And you say they misdiagnosed him. What was the initial thought? They thought he had a syndrome um, that... You know, the minute we started Googling it, we could tell that the it just it didn't add up. And we started questioning, and we got a lot of pushback from the hospital team, which was very difficult and unpleasant to have to deal with all of that at the, you know, at the same time. And um, we ended up switching medical teams and switching hospitals and uh, ended up at UCSF where uh, the, the genetic team there was was really strong and helping us understand that if we're on this rare diagnostic journey, that it could take time right, to understand exactly what the cause was and what the uh, what the issues were that we would be dealing with. How long did it actually take to get to a, a diagnosis? It took three years, really. Well, I'll, I'll say it took three years. It took three years for us to get the results from the exome sequencing, but it really took longer than that. It took another year before we had confidence that of the initial exome results identifying two candidate genes that it was really one and not the other. It took another year of analysis to determine that it was one mutation and not the other that was the cause. You were able to identify two genetic mutations through exome sequencing. How were you able to get exome sequencing? Were there insurance issues to overcome? Did you turn to academic sources? We were lucky. The the genetic team at UCSF, the office there, was able to get the pre-approval from our insurance company. And anecdotally, I, I have heard in the past three to four years that more and more families are having success with that. But when we got 
our approval back in 2013, I think there were still a lot of families battling insurance to get it done. Uh, I think that's getting easier as time passes, thankfully. What did the Exxon sequencing tell you? It told us that there were two spontaneous, in other words, de novo or not inherited mutations, one on ADM1A, otherwise known as LSD1, and the other on a gene called ANCRD11. And it's the, it's the former one, KDM1A, that we think is the one that is the, the real cause for Milo's um, global delays. And so that's what we're really focusing on at this point. What, if anything, is known about that mutation to date? So when we first got the results back, nothing was known. There was nothing in the medical literature. And we teamed up with the initial UCSF team to publish a paper about, at that time, it was about the two candidate genes. And since then, um, we got over our privacy issues, and we threw up a website called milosjourney.com, where we put forth all of the medical information that we'd received. Uh, and six days after we set up that website, a family from Denver emailed us to say that their son also had a mutation on KDM1A. And he looked like he could be Milo's brother. So we kind of felt like we were onto something. And by calling through all the medical journal information out there, we found a boy in Greece who also had a mutation on KDM1A. And so we published another article in in uh, that, that in genetics and medicine about those three boys, and have since found two more in the U.S. with mutations on KDM1A. So it's been uh, a journey, a slow-ish process, but we now in the United States have a tribe of four boys under the age of six that we now have mutations on this gene and have a very similar phenotype. It's interesting. You're almost joking, so you got over your privacy issues. I find people in the rare disease community much more willing to overcome privacy issues than than other people, but what was the thinking in doing that? I mean, was there a, a hesitation to to go online with this kind of detail? Oh, there was huge hesitation. <laughs> we were very concerned about privacy issues and what would it mean and do we have the right to do this when it's about our kids? Do we have, the, you know, our son? We actually have three boys, but, you know, do we have a right to do this on behalf of our son Milo? And we, what really was a catalyst for us was the story of Matt Mike, whose Son, oldest son Bertrand has a mutation on Engelheim 1. And it was, he was a computer science professor at the time at the University of Utah. And through his blog, he actually was able to identify other children with mutations on Engelheim 1, uh, including Matt Wilsey's daughter, uh, Grace. And they've built their tribe up to, I think it might actually be close to 50 now, 50 kids around the world who have a mutation on that gene. And so, Matt Might, who I connected with years ago, is the one who, who really turned the light bulb on in my head that if you want to find other families, it's got to be the parents that do it because clinicians don't have the time or the resources to stay up till two in the morning for years on end, Googling and finding other families. So we did it. One of the things you discovered as you connected with other families with the same mutation is that's associated with a facial dysmorphia, that the, the kids you found all look alike. Mm -hmm. You suspect there are other people with the same mutation that may never have been detected or diagnosed because 
the availability of exome sequencing is relatively new. One of the things you're hoping to do is find people through these shared features. How are you going about that, and, and, and have you had any success finding older patients? We have not yet, but I am hopeful and optimistic that it can and will happen. Um, you know, I, I, I just think based on the trajectory that I'm seeing with our little tribe of four here in the U.S., I think that this is a disorder that is not likely to be progressive. You know, I think these boys can live, you know, healthy lives through adulthood. And so I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that there are teenagers and grown men out there who have mutations on this gene. And I'm, of course, very curious and dying to see how things progress and how these, how these other, other um, guys are doing. But it's going to take time because my hypothesis is that, you know, if you were above the age of six or seven by roughly 2013, that, you know, families and the medical team that worked with your child probably, you know, had given up on really finding an answer to, uh, you know, what's the diagnosis and had probably settled for a label like cerebral palsy or some similar um, kind of label that describes the symptoms, but isn't really an explanation of what ha what's happening with your child. And my hope is that as the cost of exome sequencing goes down and becomes more widely available, that more teenagers and adults will start to get the testing done and we can build our tribes more effectively. Milo, in his young life, has undergone six surgeries. How, how old is he now and how is his health and his progress? He is six years old and he's in a wonderful general education kindergarten classroom where he is loved by his classmates and his teachers and because of um, their ability to customize and accommodate his special, you know, customize the curriculum and accommodate his special needs, he is actually considered on grade level academically, which is just fantastic. And so we couldn't be happier with where he is today. And he's, you know, he doesn't thankfully have seizures. Um, and so from a medical perspective, as far as we know, the surgeries are done, and hopefully he's going to become less and less medically complex over time, and we can just focus on, you know, educational supports to help him be the best that he can be. You've mentioned you've come across a, a tribe before now. Uh, one of the things that can be quite difficult is you never know how heterogeneous these types of mutations are. In, in comparing notes, is there anything you can tell about the course of development and, and the impact the, of the gene and, and what might be ahead for Milo? Uh, it's hard to say. Uh, he's the oldest in the group of four. And so it's hard to know exactly what the future has in store for us. But I think, you know, at this stage, if the if we're right about the surgery being done and, you know, if there isn't seizure activity that could put your child at risk for regression in terms of their development, our hope is that things can be more stable and his development can be on a more, you know, linear upward to the right trajectory going forward. That's our hope. One of the things that people with an eye-diagnosed rare disease often talk about is the feeling of isolation they have. What was your experience in this regard? Oh, it's hard. It's extremely isolating to be in the world of you know, the rare or undiagnosed. Um, 
you know, I think in the world of special needs, there are certain big categories like Down syndrome. There's even rare categories like Angelman syndrome or MECP2 or RET, where for those categories, there are global networks of parents, clinicians, and researchers that raise millions of dollars from the medical research on the disorder and also hold annual conferences for families where the families provide emotional support to each other and tips about what works for this educational challenge or that behavioral challenge. When you're undiagnosed, you don't have a tribe and you don't get any of those supports. And so it's extremely isolating and extremely difficult. And you can still try to, you know, form friendships with other special needs parents, which, you know, which I have done and it's been extremely helpful for us. But without your own tribe, you're that much more lost than you would be otherwise. I kind of, I kind of think of it as the other other, right? When you're, when you have a special needs child, you're in the other category that society, a lot of society doesn't know what to do with. But then when you're in the undiagnosed category, it's, it's that, you know, times two, which is very hard. You have a diagnosis of sorts, but its meaning is unclear. Has it helped to have a, a name or at least a gene to, to put to this, or is it a source of anxiety and frustration? Well, thanks for asking that question, because actually it has helped a lot. So it turns out that ADM1A, the gene, um, is actually a pretty hot gene, um, as researchers are concerned. And the protein it's associated with is called LSD1. And LSD1 is a famous protein in the world of epigenetics, and epigenetics is a very hot field in terms of research these days. So by throwing our information up online, we've actually had a bunch of researchers independently reach out and contact us to talk about wanting to do, you know, custom lab work or custom research on the, on the mutation. So that's been extremely helpful. But I will point out that we don't technically have a name for the syndrome because from the NIH perspective, you know, a global sample size of five is not enough to justify a name. It has to be, I think, a larger sample size. I'm not sure what the cutoff is, but it's a lot higher than five. Is is the, the gene implicated in, in more common diseases? It is, um, because it's a regulatory gene. It turns other genes on and off, and so I think it's important for cancer research amongst other other big research projects. You've now connected to a few other families with children with the same mutation. What has the ability to connect to others done for you? It it kind of gives you that very human sense of belonging. You know that it's we're kind of in this together, and even though we haven't managed to meet in person, we're a virtual community, and we care about each other, and we want to share stories and and exchange ideas about what can help our children be the best that they can be. It's it's a, it's just a very human need to belong and to know that you have a tribe of supportive people who get you is hugely valuable. Where do you go from here? Where, where are you focusing your efforts? Oh, um, it's hard to prioritize, but I, I think of it as primarily two areas. One is sort of day-to-day, what are the therapies and educational supports that I can help team up with uh, Milo's other professionals and work with him to help him be the best that he can be. And secondarily are, you know, the medical research efforts. And we are doing our best to manage both of those. Uh, it's a lot of time. It's a lot of 
effort, but I think, you know, we kind of want to keep progress moving on both fronts because hopefully during Milo's lifetime, the combination will really help him, um, you know, reach his full potential. Karen Park, mother of Milo. You can learn more about Milo and his condition at milosjourney.com. Karen, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.